Thank you. Okay, well, we're, we're in Revelation this week, and uh, Revelation is one of those books, I think, when you look at it, sometimes we don't think about it in terms of Genesis, but really, Revelation is sort of like reading, a, in a one sense, like another novel, maybe a mystery novel, and, uh, you know, the first chapter of a mystery novel, you find out somebody got killed, and then you're wondering who did it. And then the rest of the book, you know, develops it. And finally, in the last chapter, we find all the details. We find out who did it, and, and everything is solved. In Genesis, we see all the problems, especially Genesis 3. We see, we see sin. We see everything that happened there. We get to Revelation. It's not, it's, it's not by mistake it's the last book of the Bible. It's not by mistake it's the last book written in the Bible. But we get to Genesis, or we get to Revelation, and we see, every, see the end of everything that started in Genesis. In Genesis, we saw the devil for the first time. He came in the form of a serpent. In Revelation, uh, chapter 12, he's still a serpent, but a bigger one, he's a dragon. And by chapter 20, he's thrown into the lake of fire. So what began with the devil, the devil ends in, the, in Revelation. We see sin starting in Genesis 3. And by the, way, by the time we get to the end of Revelation, sin is done. No more sin. Uh, we see the curse starting in Genesis 3. The curse is removed. Uh, a lot of things in Genesis. We go back there and we look at Genesis 3 and we, it looks like the devil wins. We get the revelation, God wins. So this is all what we see in this book of Revelation. The theme of Revelation, there's no question about it, is the return of Christ. It starts off talking about that in chapter 1. It ends up talking about that in chapter 22, and the last thing Paul, or G, rather John says is, Come, Lord Jesus. And so as we look at the seven churches, which really we're focusing on this week, at least two of them in depth, uh, we, we see at six of those seven churches, Jesus says something about his return. He's coming back, and we look forward to that. And it ought to make a difference in the way that we live. That's one of the things that he sets forth here. The return of Christ is not just to be studied out of curiosity. Revelation does not tell us when Jesus is going to come back. Revelation tells us, though, it ought to make a difference in the way that we live. And so as we look at this, it's sort of interesting to me as I look at chapters 2 and 3 in Revelation. Uh, if Paul had written this book, it would have been a different order. At least if we can take Romans and Galatians and Ephesians, we would expect, if Paul wrote this book, that chapters 2 and 3 would have been at the end. It would have been back there, uh, you know, having done all the doctrine, then he would have come to the practical. It's, I, I look at this and I sort of think of a Greek sentence in a way. This may not mean a lot to, to some of you, but Greek word order doesn't mean as much. Well, excuse me, it, it, it does mean as, as much in one sense, but in English it's critical. You can't change word order in English. If I say the ball hit the boy, that's a lot different than the, that the boy hit the ball. And in Greek, though, with endings, you can change word order, and if you want to put something, emphasis on something, you can change the word order from the normal pattern and move it around. And I think that's sort of what logically, we're not talking about grammar here, logically what Jesus and John have done here. 
What we would expect in Paul to be at the end, he's moved it to the very beginning, at least in the second and third chapters. He's put it up front. And I believe that these are the two most important chapters in the book. I don't think that Jesus came to John and really was talking uh, in that the most important thing is to look at my return, try to figure out what all this is going to happen. He was talking to the churches. He wanted his return to make a difference. And so he says to these churches, look, if you've got problems, you need to repent. If you don't repent, you're going to get the judgments of chapters 6 to 19. If you do repent, you get the blessings of chapters 21 and 22. And so as we look at this, these are two very, very important chapters. Now, I spent all last semester on sabbatical, and I was, my, project was, my project was Revelation. And I can pretty much guarantee you today I can dump enough trivia on you that you could be bored to tears and probably fall asleep. I'm going to try to not do that. <laughs> In fact, I'm not. I'm going to look at the problem, and I'm, I think as we look at this chapter, and I'm looking at Ephesus today, and uh, we're, as we look at this, I'm, gonna, I'm going to be talking uh, about this church, and let's just go right to the heart of the problem. Uh, we may get to some of the details, and we will get to some of the details, but let's just go to the heart of the problem. And what is the problem at Ephesus? <laughs> well, verse 4, right there, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. That's it, love. Now you look at that and you say, well, what's Jesus so upset about? So they're, they're, they're not too affectionate. Uh, <laughs> why is he upset? Well, it's not that simple. Because Jesus is very upset with his church, and the penalty is extreme, and so let's talk about what is, what is involved here in not displaying love. Now, the, really, the question is, is what is, a, what is a church supposed to be or what is it supposed to be doing? And I'm not going to go into a whole study of ecclesiology here, but I am going to look at this, what, what Jesus says in Ephesus about what a church should be doing. And the first thing that Jesus says about a church is it's supposed to be a lampstand. <laughs> now, You've probably heard this before. I uh, heard it many years ago. I heard it many times. So when I say this, it's probably not going to be something unique or something you haven't heard before. And after the first line, you'll probably say, oh, yeah, I have heard that. But years ago, I heard someone say, when we get to heaven, we will be able to do almost everything better there than we can do it here. We'll be able to sing better. Now, some of you are very good, but some of us are looking for a change of vocal cords. <laughs> we'll be able to worship better. We'll be able to serve better. We'll live a more holy and righteous life. We'll be without sin. But the one thing we will not do better in heaven than we do here is share the gospel with unbelievers. That is one thing we won't. And that's why Jesus describes the church here as a lampstand, as a you know, the King James, I think, has candlestick. When we're talking about lampstand, we think about light. Now, he says these churches are lampstands, and he doesn't mean they glow in the dark. Not even Dr. Wong, who will be preaching on Ephesus, or rather uh, Philadelphia on Wednesday, which is maybe the best of all the churches, it didn't even glow in the dark. What he's talking about is it's a testimony. It gives light to the world. You walk into your room at night. It's dark. You've been to dinner. You've been studying the library, whatever it is. You turn on the light because you don't want to trip over your roommate's shoes. Now, you would never leave yours there because it's about to be your roommates, right? All right. So you turn on. A, you want to read a book. 
Yeah, so you need the light to see the pages. You've got, you got a quiz or a test the next day. And so you know what light is all about. We understand light. And Jesus says these churches are to be light lampstands. They're to give off light. But we're talking here about a testimony. When someone looks at the church, and by the way, when I say church, I'm not thinking of a building over there called Placerita Bible Church or Grace Baptist Church a little farther away or down in the valley at Grace Community Church. I'm not talking about a building. I'm talking about people. People make up the church. They're just buildings when people aren't there. And so we're talking about here the people in the church are to give off light to the community. They are to tell people, they are to tell unbelievers something about Jesus the way that, they, the way that we live. Now, you know, it's possible that th these people were quite verbal about their faith at Ephesus. They certainly were testing false apostles and things like that. I had a friend years ago who was that way. He was very verbal about sharing his faith. Problem is no one listened to him because he had nothing to back it up in terms of lifestyle. And I think that's what, it, what, what Jesus is so upset with this church about right here. There's, they're not telling the world anything with their life. I think they know what the Great Commission is. I think they know they're supposed to be making disciples and sharing the gospel. I think they understand Acts 1.8. But what they weren't doing is backing it up with a life that counted. And so Jesus says here, he says, he says you're not doing this. And he's talking to the whole church here. You know, it's interesting as we look at, at these seven churches. Two of them are very good. There's nothing wrong with them, and Jesus doesn't condemn them for anything. But five of them have problems. Three of them, Thy uh, Pergamum, Thyatira, and Sardis, he talks to the individuals in the church, and it's sort of a mixed group. He says, some of you don't worry about it. Just hang on to what you got, and you're going to get the reward. But the rest of you in those churches... You know, you've got some serious issues. You need to repent, or you are going to get the judgment of 6 to 19. But if you repent, you get the blessings. Now, <laughs> admittedly, when we look at Sardis, there's not too many over there. It's just a few. It's hardly a compliment, but at least it's different. There's a few there. Do you realize when we look at the first and the last church, Ephesus and Laodicea, he doesn't divide them into groups. He looks at the whole church, and he says, all of you need to repent. I'm going to do something to the whole church. At Laodicea, I'm going to vomit you out of my mouth. That's not, that's not church discipline, guys. That's final judgment. <laughs> and he says to the church of Ephesus here, he, he says, I'm going to remove your candlestick. And so he's talking about some very strong things here. Now, we look at that, and as I said at the start, we talk about love. And you say, well, what, <laughs> you know, what, why is love so important? If I told you, and uh, I guess we are in a sense talking, we need to evaluate love in our lives and whether we really have it or not. And then, then I ask you, well, what are you going to try to improve? Give me a definition of love. Can you give me a definition of love? <laughs> uh, often, we, we oftentimes just think, well, we really can't define it in one way. It's sort of a feeling and this and that. So I decided to look it up in a, in a dictionary. You know, the Bible actually says, you know, we're to love one another and it's the evidence of salvation because if we don't love, if we don't uh, love God, we don't know God. And so I decided to look it up in, in, the, in a dictionary. And this is sort of, this is what I found the dic 
the, the dictionary says. Uh, it says that there were several definitions. This is number one, though. It is an intense affection for another person based on familial, family, or personal ties. Most of the others had to do with sexuality in some sense. But I looked at all of them, I said, none of those really define God, do they? I mean, you, you talk about an intense affection. Can you go through the scriptures and find anything about God <laughs> in terms of intense affection? Uh, it doesn't, God, especially when we're dealing with the words that you're familiar with, uh, agape and agapao, we don't, those, those don't describe what God does. That doesn't describe what, what, is, what God has here and, and what, he, what he is and what he's doing. Uh, and certainly when it says based on, you know, God's love isn't based on anything except outside of himself. We see that in Romans 5. We're not good. We're not righteous. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That's what, that's what, we're, you know, that's what we're dealing with in terms of that, this kind of love. But love is the evidence of salvation, and the Ephesian church is not exhibiting it, but what aren't they exhibiting? And what happened to them? You know, we come down here, it's, it, we, we look at the verse 4 for a second, it says, I have this against you, that you have left your first love. Now, <laughs> number one, that word left is really an interesting word. It is an unusual word. First of all, by its position in sentence. Remember I said you move things around in a Greek sentence and get emphasis on it? If I say in English, you have left your first love, it's at the beginning. So obviously, we're not going to move it to the beginning of the sentence. It's already there. So if you can't move it to the beginning for emphasis, what do you do? You put it at the end. And that's exactly what Jesus has done here. He says, the first love, you left. <laughs> so he's really putting emphasis on, even on the word just by its position. But then the word itself. If I, was, if I say to you, you know, when you leave here today, you'll go out those doors or that door or you'll leave here somehow, and I talk about you leaving this room, this is not the Greek word I'm going to use. There's another one, a more common word. You know what this word is usually used for in Scripture? It's the word that's translated in the New Testament, forgive. If, <laughs> if we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He leaves them off. He erases them. These people, Jesus is saying, you've, you've left off doing these things. You've erased your evidence that you're, a, that you're a believer. Extremely strong word. Extremely strong position. I don't know whether it's conscious or unconscious, but they, they made a decision to stop acting like believers. And they couldn't be identified. You know, we talk about falling in love. Well, these people just didn't simply fall out of love. They, they made a, some sort of effort uh, to stop it. <laughs> now, again, we come back to that definition that I had, and that doesn't describe God's love, and it doesn't describe our love. So I decided, well, I better look in the Scriptures then and look up love. Now, I, I think I got about all of them, but just in case I missed one, I'll just say I, have a, I looked up about all of them, okay? A little... I'll give myself a little bit of leeway here. And you know what I found about the definition of love in Scripture? The Bible doesn't define it. <laughs> and you say, well, wait a minute. Doesn't it say in 1 John 4, 10, and this is love, not that we love God, but He loved us and gave His Son to be a propitiation for our sins? It does. 
But you think about that for a little bit. That's not a definition of love. That gives a description of love. It tells us what love does. It doesn't tell us what love is. Love, if it's love and God's love, God acts sacrificially. Uh, God doesn't respond to something that we do. We don't deserve it. Uh, it meets needs. It met the greatest need we have. But that all has to do with what love does. Uh, we could go to 1 Corinthians. Can't, t- can't talk about love without looking at 1 Corinthians 13. And we go over to 1 Corinthians 13, and, it's, and it says there, love is kind, uh, love never fails, love is patient. And you can read verses 4 through 7 for the complete list. But again, there's not a definition. It tells how love acts. It tells what love does. And uh, we could even go to Romans chapter 9. And God even makes choices about who, who he loves. But love isn't simply making a choice. It's just making a determination about who, what, where the action's going to happen. It's really, it says that love can be discriminatory. And it says there, God loved Jacob and he hated Esau. Now, there are other ways that God really loved Esau, but at that point about pouring out the blessings that he gave to Jacob, he didn't give any of those to Esau. And I think that we could say that God's love, probably I can show you even uh, differs in intensity. I I think you can find in Scripture, and I can show you, that God the Father loves God the Son more than he loves any of us, with more intensity. In fact, I think I can show if God doesn't love the Son, he wouldn't love us. And I think that certainly when we look at other things, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But God doesn't love the world, the whole world, like he does those in the church. And so there's a, there's a difference in the way that God loves. But when we look at this and talk about a definition, it's not really defining it. It just says God does this. Probably the closest thing we can come to is say that God's love seeks the highest good for the ones, that he, the ones that he loves. But even that is more of a description than a definition. But the Bible does say God is love. 1 John 4, 8. But that doesn't mean God, love is God, <laughs> any more than righteous is God when we say God is righteous. What it's saying there is love is an essential attribute. It's a it's, it's a core char- characteristic of his being. And God, by his nature, seeks the highest good for those that he loves. But it really still doesn't give a definition of this. And when we come to our love, it's the same thing. Uh, Jesus says, if you love me, you can do my commandments. We get over to 1 John chapter 5, and there's, it's, it's very similar there as well. He says, In chapter 5, he says, um, we know, he says, whoever believes Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Whoever loves the Father loves the child born of him. We know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. This is the love of God, that we keep his commandments. So if we love God, we keep his commandments. I I think when we come down to it, it's hard to define love, but one thing we can say about it, whether it's a verb or whether it's a noun, it's an action word. Love acts. And what Jesus is saying to these people at Ephesus, there is nothing here that you are doing right now in terms of your action that gives any evidence that you know me. 
And he is serious, obviously serious about this. And so, what, what, are, what are we going to do if we love God? Well, we're going to do the commandments. We're going to keep his commandments. And what are we going to do if we love people? Well, again, reading the verse there. By this, uh, we, we know that we love the children of God when we love God and observe his commandments. It's action. In other words, if we love people, we're going to do the will of God with respect to those people. We're going to obey the commands, and we, were, we are going to essentially do for those people that we love, those who are objects of our affection, and I hate the word uh, affection here, but, but uh, who are objects of our love, we're going to do for them what God would do for them, and we're going to do it for him. And, and, I, and, and so this is, this is really we're talking about an action word here. Now, someone might say, well, isn't this legalism? Uh, we do have to watch out for that because we can turn this into legalism without much problem. I can say, you know, God wants me because he commands this to me. Uh, I can do this and, okay, chalk one up for God up there. <laughs> and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm establishing my righteousness with God by doing all these things for him and obeying his commands and doing these things for people. I'm not going to get any more righteous in my position before God than I am already in Jesus Christ. So I'm not going to establish my righteousness by doing these things. But Paul says in Ephesians 5, he says we're to imitate God, verse 1, and, uh, and, and uh, walk in love. I think the way we imitate God is by walking in love. We imitate God. What would God do for people? He would sacrifice, he would meet needs, he would do all of these things, and so how do we imitate God? We do what God would do. And if we want to imitate Jesus, we say we want to be, be like Jesus. You know, it always, always amazing me. I'll have people sit from time to time, well, my Jesus wouldn't do that. And I look at them, where's your Jesus? <laughs> how do you know what Jesus is? You know, the commands of God reveal the character of God and the character of Jesus. When God was at Mount Sinai, talking with Moses and giving him the commands. Prior, prior to that time, he didn't have a little conference with the Trinity and say, you know, those people down there just have to have something to do. If they don't have something to do, they're going to get in a lot of trouble. So let's just make up an arbitrary list of commands and we'll give it to them. And so when we sin, we just break commands. Now, when we sin, we're violating the character of God because God's commands reflect his character. We don't lie because God, God is truth. We don't kill because God <laughs> is a giver of life. And we could go on down the list. Paul seems to indicate that even in Romans when he says we're to love our neighbor as ourselves, And then he starts listing our, the, the Ten Commandments or some of the Ten Commandments. If you love your neighbor, you don't commit adultery with his wife. If you love your neighbor, you don't steal. If you love your neighbor, you don't kill him. We do, we reflect what God is. And when we do the commands of God, that's what we are, that's what we are doing. We are demonstrating who God is. And that's what Jesus, what Jesus is saying to the church. As lampstands, you are to give light. You are to show what God is like. And you're not doing this. You may be doing a lot of other things. There's a lot of busy work described in verses 2 and 3. But that doesn't count. At least in terms of your, what really gives a, shows a relationship with me. So love is an action. Love is an evidence of salvation. 
So <laughs> one other thing before I go on to the next point, though, and I want to bring this out. almost forgot it. But love is something that unbelievers cannot duplicate. They cannot imitate it. We are talking about something here that is an attribute of God that we can perform, and we can only do that through the work of the Holy Spirit. That's very clear from, from uh, Galatians 5, 22 and 23. The fruit of the Spirit is love. And you say, well, <laughs> it's got eight other things after that, so it's not just love. No, the first word in the list oftentimes in the New Testament is described by the rest of the things in the list. If you look at the next eight things, go back to 1 Corinthians 13, they all describe love. The real fruit of the Spirit is love. If God is working in our lives and we are believers and we are living for Him and the Holy Spirit has control of our lives, we're going to produce love. We are going to be imitating God. We will be a lampstand. Now, as we look at this, go on in this passage and, and look at this, what is going on then at Ephesus? Uh, he, he starts off here and he, again, he talks about the first love here. He says, you've left your first love. Uh, again, the word order is, so, is interesting when we come to that word, that term. If we look, at it, we look at it in English and we say, the first love of you, of your first love. The definite article is there in front of first love, and so it definitely is pointing out something you know, very critical here. He's pointing out something he wants them to know. But again, the word order is interesting. Not only is this the only place in Scripture that love is referred to as the first love, there's one close to it that I'll talk about in a minute, but it's not only is it the only place really that this expression occurs, but the word order again is emphatic. Uh, you know, again, you can change word order. In, ing in English, we could put it this way, but it sounds better when we say your first love. But in Greek, what he says, the love, the first one. So he's changed the word order to make it more emphatic. And he doesn't just say the love, the first one of you, or the, your love, the first one. <laughs> he puts the you, the of you, after, after the love. You have left the love of you, the first one. So he is really hitting hard this idea about something being first. Now, as we look at Ephesus, it is possible that he certainly could be talking about, uh, you know, something that characterized this church way back at the beginning of the church. You know, it's about 50 years old now. This is 95. Paul, Paul founded it 53, 54 in that time period. He spent three years there. And, and maybe he is saying this church isn't what it used to be. Uh, you know, over the years, things have changed. And it's possible we can look at it and say, well, you know, the people, uh, just their love just grew cold. They're still genuine. And, you know, Christians can do things that, that makes them look like non-Christians. But probably not for a long period of time and certainly not without being convicted by the Holy Spirit. But if it goes on long enough, they really aren't Christians. But it could be that also he's looking back and he's saying, you know, you, this, you're, there's something happened to you. Your, your grandmother, your mother, your father, your grandfather, your friends, uh, they, were, they were different. <laughs> they really had a genuine faith. You're missing something here. You know, somewhere along the line, the gospel got messed up. I had uh, a 
church history professor when I was in seminary. He was sort of a walking encyclopedia on church history. He made a statement once. I, I, didn't forget, I never really forgot it. He says that churches on average, or rather uh, schools rather, he's talking about Christian colleges. Christian colleges on average go about 75 years and then they, <laughs> then they turn downwards. They, they lose doctrine or something, but they're not the same anymore. Now, they probably don't get up there and just drop off. They've, it's probably a gradual uh, period of where they go over. And not every, you know, it's, it is an average. We celebrated our 75th anniversary in 2012. And as long as Dr. MacArthur's here, we're not going, over, we're not going down doctrinally. <laughs> we know that. But there's others that didn't last nearly that long. And there are some schools, if you think about them, if you don't know their history, you wouldn't even realize they were once a Christian college. You know, Harvard started out that way. But you probably don't think about Harvard that way. Do you realize that the USC, the University of Southern California, started out as a Methodist college? <laughs> Before they were the USC Trojans, they were the USC Methodists. <laughs> you, you know, great academic programs in both places, but you don't think of them today as Christian colleges. And they're not. Something happened along the way. Apparently, something happened along the way here uh, with, with this church because churches can be the same way. You know, they go up and they level off and sort of drop down. And oftentimes, sometimes it, has, it doesn't have to do with doctrine, but, but they don't have the zeal they used to have. These people lost something. They lost the evidence of their salvation over the years. And when we look at this, Jesus says to them, I, I'm, you know, I'm really serious about this. I'm going to come and I'm going to remove your lampstand. Now, it's, it's sort of interesting as I look at the, the, the Jesus description here. In chapter 1, Jesus talks about the seven stars, which he identifies as the seven messengers of the church. And he says they're upon his hand. You know, I've only got five fingers, so you've got to imagine two more there. But they're, the, the, seven, the seven stars are upon his hand. Picture sort of a relationship there. And he's standing there, he says, in the, he says in the, he's standing in the midst of the seven lampstands there. Now, some people picture it as a straight line, and he's at number four. I picture it sort of a circle, and he's in the middle. You know, you can't be dogmatic about that. But it pictures a relationship. Jesus says, I have a relationship. And he's addressing them on the basis of their profession, but he says, on the basis of profession, I have a relationship because you claim to be mine. And, I, and he claims, I have this relationship with you. In chapter 2, when he gets to Ephesus, they're no longer, the seven stars are no longer upon his hand. He's holding them. You know, he's got a hold of them. The seven lampstands, he's no longer just standing there. He's walking in the midst of the seven lampstands. Now, when we talk about the other four churches that have spiritual problems, not, not Smyrna, not Philadelphia, but the other four, I can, the first line of description about Jesus to each one of them, I can show you some place in the rest of the book that those terms are used uh, in, 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 in conjunction with judgment upon the churches. I can't really find seven lampstands there in the... But it is interesting as I go back in history, back to, back to Genesis again, 
because uh, there's more parallels to the Ephesian church in Genesis 3 than there are to the other churches. But as you go back to Genesis 3, think back to that for a moment. There it is, back in Genesis chapter 3, and you know the devil came to Adam and they came to Eve and he said, he, he said to them, you know, who said you can't eat from that tree? God just knows when you, when you do this, you'll know, have a knowledge of good and evil. You'll be like him. And he's not saying they're going to increase in knowledge, that they're really going to gain it. He's saying, be your own boss. You determine what's right and what's wrong. They, they made the wrong choice. And so then they go along and then they realize that they, are <laughs> that they have sinned and things have changed. They notice they're naked, and so they become their own personal tailors, and they use the fig leaves. And uh, the next thing we read is, in, in the New American Standard says, and, they came and God came walking in the cool of the day. Sort of the picture you get is, uh, God is sort of surprised at this sin. No, he's just walking along. Let's go down and visit Adam and Eve. And he says, where are you? <laughs> uh, and he's walking in the best part of the day. You know, we've had some, we have some great Hebrew scholars around here. Uh, Dr. Boyd was here, and now Dr. Chow is here. And both of them, looking at the Hebrew text in Genesis 3, says, it's not talking about the best part of the day. It talks about there, it's a storm. It's, it's wind is blowing, the who knows, hail, tornado, whatever's going on, it's a storm. It's a picture of God coming in judgment. That's why Adam and Eve are hiding. They know God's coming after them. And I think we, God is walking in that storm. And I think the picture of Jesus walking here is a, is a picture of judgment. He's, the picture of him holding the representatives in his hand. He, he's not, they're not just a relationship. He's got control of them. He's, he's, he's upset with them. He's walking in the churches. He's going to judge. And it says here when he comes, he's going to remove their lampstand. So people look, well, what, what, is the, what does he mean when he says he's going to remove their lampstand. Well, some people say, well, you know, it's a, it's a special coming in judgment and God is just going to take away their testimony. And I look at it and I say, that's why they're being judged. They don't have a testimony. <laughs> that can't be it. And then some will look at it and say, well, uh, you know, it's the 200 years later, the river filled up uh, the, the, the sea at that point, and now the city of Ephesus is a few miles back and it's lost all its glory. It's, it's, it's in poverty. It's a, a lot of things happened to it. God didn't threaten judgment upon the city. The lamp stands as a church. He didn't threaten anything on that. It's in conjunction with his return. Jesus is going to remove their lampstand when he comes back if they don't repent. <laughs> and we, we look at it. So what, is, well, what does that mean? Well, look at the context. Let's assume... <laughs> You can have them in a straight line if you want. I'm assuming it's a circle. And here we start off with Ephesus. We'll put Ephesus at the top since it's first. And then you move to Smyrna. And then we move to Pergamum. Then we move to Thyatira. And then we go on down to Sardis. And then we get to Philadelphia and finally Laodicea. And he's saying, and he's saying I'm going to remove you out of your place. You're not going to be there anymore. It's sort of like the... The old thing, you know, we used to, uh, used to sing, and it goes on forever, 99 bottles of beer on the wall. We'll talk about beer here for a moment. <laughs> 99 bottles of beer on the wall. If one of them happens to fall, there would be 98 bottles of beer on the wall. And you, if you don't have anything to do, you sing it all the way down to zero. <laughs> well, here's seven churches sitting up on a wall, and Jesus says, if you don't repent, there's only going to be six left because you're falling. <laughs> you're getting, 
you're going to get out of here. And, and so she's going to remove them. The picture is his return. When Jesus comes back, there's going to be a rapture of the church. Uh, Dr. Wong may talk about that in, in, with relation to Philadelphia. I'm not sure. I'm not telling him what to preach on. <laughs> but he may get to it. It's there. Uh, but we're ta- looking at the rapture of the church. And Jesus, in essence, is saying to Philadelphia, if you don't have any evidence of salvation, if you don't have any works that display to the, ch- to the outside world, you probably aren't believers, and you're not going in the rapture. You're going to get the judgments of chapters 6 through 19. That's what removal of the lampstand is. This is serious business. And so Jesus says here, I want you to do something then if you want to get right with me. He says, first of all, I want you to keep on remembering. Keep on remembering where you have fallen from. This was not only, you just didn't leave, you fell. It didn't have the same universal consequences of Adam's fall, but it had pretty good consequences locally. And he says, I want you to really think about this, and I want you to repent. To all the churches with problems, he tells them they need to repent. They need to get right. Um, and, when <laughs> and then he goes on, and you would think, you know, if, the, if love was just a feeling and not an action, you would think he'd say, and do the first love. But he doesn't do that. He turns around and he says, do the first works. It's an action. You can't love biblically without acting. Love does stuff. Now, I really hope that on Wednesday you identify much more with what Dr. Wong's going to say than what I'm saying. Because he's only going to tell you good stuff. (laughs) Philadelphia was great. And hopefully you will identify with that. But let's face it. As my grandmother used to say, all of us can get up on the wrong side of bed. (laughs) You know, we can all have a bad day. Sometimes bad days turn into bad weeks. (laughs) We hope we don't want them to turn into months or years. But you can evaluate your life. Is there anything in your life that really demonstrates that you are doing for other people what God would do for them? that you want to pour out upon them the highest spiritual benefits that you can do. Sometimes it's even physical benefits, material benefits. But is there something there? How do you treat your family? How do you treat your roommates? How do you treat those you serve with in church? It's an evidence of salvation. And you know what? Other people are looking around and observing. Those outside the church are observing what we do as a church. And Jesus is very concerned about this. Sometimes people look at the message to Ephesus and think that it's, it's the, the, you know, the least of the, of the problems in the church. It's one of the two worst. If you don't have love, you do not have the evidence of salvation. And Jesus is very concerned about that. He says, but if you repent and get it back. Remember what Adam gave up? <laughs> he ate from the wrong tree. Chapter 22 says that tree is still around. It's going to be in the New Jerusalem, and it produces 12 kinds of fruit. And if you're right with God and you're there for eternity, we're going to eat from that that tree for forever and ever. It's going to be there. It's going to produce enough fruit for all of us. And so there's a lot of things that, that I could say and go on to say today. But I'm going to close with just one statement as we look at the love of God. 
And it's a statement going back to Paul. He says, whatever you do, do to the glory of God. Father, as we come here this morning and we look at this passage and we look at Revelation, certainly we have a hope for the return of Christ. But we pray that that hope will be a hope that causes us to live the way you want us to live, to be a testimony the way you want us to be a testimony, to display the glory of God in the way you want us to display the glory of God. And we pray as the world looks at us, they will see something and desire something that we have. And so we just commit our time, we commit this word to you, we thank you that your word will not return void, and we just ask your blessing upon our time now in Jesus' name.